you gave us life by crucifying your son, and that is amazing. And we will have eternity to worship you for that. But right now we are present, presented to you with a desire to hear you, to hear from you, to, to know what you've already said. We are grateful because you, you gave us your word. You, you, you didn't leave us without direction and guidance. And though we are tendency to, to, to run in every direction and try to find our own way, right now we're coming back to the word, coming back to what you've said, what you've given to us. And I recognize I, I can't do that, Lord. I can't do that. Therefore, I, I hide behind the word and I, I, I hope that the Bible would speak. I hope that your voice will be heard and it will forge and change us like my sister said, that you will be at work to make us like Christ. And that I would just disappear, you know, just disappear behind the pulpit and it would, would really be about you right now, Heavenly Father, because you are the one worthy of worship and you are the one training us and transforming us. And so we, we recognize this need right now. I recognize this need. You with my tongue, and not with my cleverness, not with my mind, but with my tongue, so you could speak. Can you speak, Lord? And I'm so grateful because you got me, you permitted me to be in your word throughout this week, to, to plunge in the depth and, and to come out affected and transformed by a little bit. And, and, and I hope to share this with my brothers and sisters and, and they can see and be in awe of what you've said. And it, it would stay with them, and it would continue to change us as we go along. So here we are as, as feeble little creatures saying, please feed us upon your great manna, Heavenly Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time around, the Lord, through his word, brought us really low. He brought us to the valleys. But at the same time, he also humbled us, Right? He brought us to this place of brokenness, of neediness, recognizing uh, to what extent that our abilities can be a hindrance, and that's why the, the thorn in the flesh was used to bring us down low before him. At the same time, we, we can't just stay here. That's what we're going to look up today to the author and finish of our faith. We're going to get up and get back running in these valleys with the Lord, and we're going to do that by turning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is a little bit like 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's the zenith of the argumentation of this anonymous author. He's been speaking for chapter after chapter like Paul was, and now he's getting to this point where he's going to just throw it out, all out there. This is Custer's last stand. This is the word that he wants to give them before he leaves them. So it's, it's of great importance. At the same time, it's also going to confront us with one of those Christian concepts that we all know about, but we don't always fully understand what they're talking about, and I mean here the discipline of the Lord, hence why I called it his discipline. We usually understand it as God punishing us because we've rebelled, because we've sinned. He's giving us a good whooping, or like he's heard it, he's taking it to the woodshed. But by doing that, we're lessening what true discipline of the Lord means, we're not taking into consideration the context in which it's being spoken right now. Hebrews 12 is one of the richest texts that talks about God's discipline in the whole New Testament, and it doesn't talk about disobedience. So right away, there's, there's something going on here that we need to consider. Plus, when we think of the greater context, this anonymous writer 
is reaching out to this Hebrew church, this, this church of, of Jewish believers who are going through persecution in their faithful walk for God. Or at least, like Peter would say, they're suffering while doing good, not evil. It's in this faithfulness that they have the things taken away, and some are brought to jail. But also some of them have stopped assembling together. Some have gone back to Judaism where it's safe. They don't recognize the need to put all their eggs in the Jesus basket anymore. And that's why this book is one of the richest books about Christ. Chapter after chapter about Christ's supremacy over angels and Moses and the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And then he gets to chapter 12 and really encourages us to keep on going. So keep that in mind as we start with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses... The therefore brings us back to chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? That's where we find this cloud of witnesses. But we have to understand that this, this faith isn't just to get stuff, as so many have said nowadays. No, the, the faith that's presented in chapter 11 is faith that helps to persevere if you get stuff or not. Yes, Abraham got Isaac, but then he, he presents Moses and Abraham together saying they didn't get the promised land. Actually, they were looking to something far greater than that. That's, that's why he, he does talk about Rahab getting, and he talks about a lot of people who didn't get. And all of them are the cloud of witnesses waiting for us so we can all enter into glory together. And that's what he's pointing at. This is what this cloud of witnesses is helping us aim at. Just like them for the Hebrews right now. So keeping that in mind, let's look at the rules he's going to lay out in the next part of the verse. Let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We need to stop here. Can't hear for a moment because I believe verse one is really the foundation on which the rest of the argumentation is built on or the rest of our passage is built on. If I permit, if you permit me to take the metaphor right now of the Olympics because he's talking about a race. So let's, let's see this passage as preparation for the Olympics where verse one is that meeting with the coach, that first meeting where he lays out his methods and he's looking at your habits and see what needs to change so you can become an Olympic gold medalist. And then from verse 2 to verse 4, it's that training from the sidelines as you're doing your thing. From verse 5 on to 11, he's then bringing us to that moment where you, you, you're at the Olympics. You've gone through some events. You didn't really make it all the way. This is the last one. Or if you prefer, it's a boxing match. Last round, you're sitting down. This is it. But the whole way through, you were on the floor a couple times. And your opponent barely hit his knee. So the coach is giving that pep talk. 5 to 11 is that pep talk that's going to get you in it and get the gold. And that's when verse 12 and 13 gets in and you go for it. You go for the gold. So let's, let's see it this way. Therefore, again, verse 1 is of great importance for us. It's another one of these little phrases that we read so quickly when we read our Bible and we don't stop. Yes, yes, no wait. Let's get them off. Let's get to something fun. No, stop. Come back. What's he saying? This expression, lay aside every weight, is, is a little expression in Greek that talks about cutting away excess fat. You know, back in the day, it was all about being lean so you could be a good wrestler or a runner. You need to take away any aspect of fat that could get in the way. Hence, tr translated as every weight. Anything that gets in the way. Now, we understand it in the Christian world as anything that is not necessarily bad in and of itself, but can slow you down. And I'm not going to mention anything because I don't want anybody breathing a little sigh of relief saying, 
He didn't mention my stuff. Now, instead, I'm going to challenge every one of us and everyone listening at home this week, bring this stuff before the Lord and ask him, is this excess weight? This needs to go. This is one of those questions that Vody Bakken would say. You either say amen or you say ouch to this. Because we know that there's a lot of stuff in our lives that's not helping us to grow to the image of Christ. Not helping us to pick up our cross and follow him. Not helping us have that relationship with God or build his kingdom. And we don't want to admit that it shouldn't be there. Because we want to keep it. We live in such a nice society where blessings are there. And we're going pretty well in a Christian life. We don't want to think about things that need to go. And especially not the second part. Sin, which clings so closely, or the King James, as it says, entangles us. This is more than just sinful uh, habits in and of itself. It's more than sinful actions, like getting angry or something. This is how sin is so interconnected with your very person, connected to your DNA that it impacts your thinking process, your desires, your attitude, your intentions. That's how it clings to us so closely, entangles itself in us and trips us up. It's a bit like what James tells us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And we tend to step back saying, That's, I'm not that bad. Jesus said, if you hate somebody, you've murdered them. You are that bad. James is not talking about sinful desires per se or sinful passions. They're neutral. It's when you want them so much that they become idols. He talks about that also in verse 1, uh, chapter 1, my mistake, when he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Again, not sinful, just desire itself. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see the process? Paul David Tripp, in a really interesting book about ministering to other people, how everybody should be doing it, starts by saying that the biggest problem you're going to face for everybody and anybody, it's sin. It's how sin is in everybody's heart. And again, not the sinful actions, sin itself. And he moves on to the next chapter talking about how all the sin infects and affects your desires. Even the most legitimate, appropriate one. I want a family. I want children. I want to get married. I want a good job. Legitimate, appropriate. It's when they become too much because sin infects and affects the way you see it. After a long week of work, saying that uh, that Friday evening or that Saturday, I want to relax. That's appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that desire. But then when people get in the way and you get angry at them, ah, that desire has become sinful because sin has infected the way you see this is something legitimate. And I believe that's what he's getting at when he talks about sin so closely connected to us, how we need that introspection that the Puritans talked about so many times that we need to be honest with ourselves about how it's so connected to our intentions and desires and actions. And we watch all these things because we got a race to win. 
And let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Here again is, is why I said verse 1 is really the foundation. These couple of expressions that he's talking about here will come back over and over and over again in our text. Like this idea of endurance. He's going to talk about it many times. Instead of bearing under and keep going, like perseverance. There's a pressure upon you, but you keep on going. He's saying, do that in the race. Hence, if you have weights that shouldn't be there, that's going to make it harder. If you get the disease of sin giving you spiritual asthma, it's going to get harder to endure. You got to get rid of that. You got to operate. If you want to win the race, that it's set before you. Right? Look before you. And this idea of looking before you, like I said, is going to keep coming over and over again. And it's going to be move on to the next verse when he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And this idea of looking is really this idea of focusing only on him and nothing else. Not the difficulty of the race that's before you. Not everything that's pressing down against you, you just look to him. He's the author and finisher, founder and perfecter of our faith. Not in the sense of the Holy Spirit working in us, but in the sense of him as an example to follow. Him who lived a perfect life without sin, being tested in all ways without disobedience. Him who went all the way to the cross, took upon himself our sins and our judgment, died and resurrected. That's how he's the author and finisher, founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the example we look to. He walked away and then he became the way we walk on. That's what the author is getting at. And then he continues with this example by saying, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Again, that word, he endured it. And I, I dare believe that he had to endure all the way through. He was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knew it was coming. I'm thinking when he was still pretty young, being the son of God, he kept going. But I would even think about that moment in Gethsemane when the weight was so great, it says that he stumbled and fell and then prayed. That's intense. But what happened after that? He got up and his face like flint walked to the cross. That's what we're looking at. That's the example that's presented to us. And how did he do it? Because of the joy set before him. So you look before, to Christ, who himself looked to the joy that was to come afterwards. So you keep that in mind, and then he adds this. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This isn't just simple description. This, this is where Jesus says, yeah, we, we know that. That's not the point. We are reminded that we are in Christ, and because of that, we are seated in the heavenlies with him right now. We are citizens of heaven, and this is a reminder for them. He looked at the joy, and you looked at the fact that you are already in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. You looked at that joy, that reality, like he looked to his joy. You looked to his example, the same way he looked to the joy to come, you looked to him. And that's what he's presenting to us so we can look upon him. Not just about his uh, difficult walk that he endured, but also the joy that he is in right now and it's waiting for us. Yet, there was a little difficulty. Right in the middle of the verse, he talks about despising the shame. Right? Cursed is he who is upon the tree. God said that because he was talking about his son who will be cursed for us. 
Yet Jesus despised. The, the, the expression really talks about seeing it as less than. Seeing it as less important, less weighty than the joy before him. Or the cross was very real, but the joy was far greater. He saw it as less than. This is the kind of stuff Paul talks about, and you guessed it, 2 Corinthians. I love this book. It says in chapter 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the secret. Now I'll confess and I'll be honest with you for many, many years my, my beginning my Christian life I, I looked about that little expression light momentary affliction I said are you kidding me? Are you saying what I'm going through is light and momentary Lord? And I know what you're getting at. I see what Paul's But still, right now, this is excruciatingly difficult. And I'm not going to deny that. It's only when I actually studied and preached 2 Corinthians, that's why I love it so much, that it really pierced through my heart the reality of what Paul is pointing to. To really grab hold of what is invisible, of this weight of glory that will destroy the scale. And therefore, this affliction becomes light. It is an effort to preach to ourselves. It is an effort to remind ourselves of what is to come is far greater and more real, even though right now, what is real, it, it, it's, it's a, it hurts. That's what's real right now. That's why for any of my brothers and sisters growing through a difficult trial, we're not denigrating that. We're not saying it's not real. But we're saying you've got to preach to yourself, remind yourself that there's something far weightier and more glorious to come, and that has to become your reality. You have to pray for yourself, Ephesians Three, once again, this idea of really being able to grab hold of this infinite greatness of our God, be filled with this fullness, and the love of Christ that cannot be understood, that will break the scale. And that's also what Jesus did, and that's what the author is getting at as he continues in Hebrews by saying, consider him who endured for sinners such hostilities against himself. Now, why is he talking about sinners against Jesus, why is he giving that specific example? We'll get back to that with verse 4. But for now, don't miss this idea. He endured it. He had that pressure against him, and he kept going. Think about how many times the Pharisees come to him and judge him and criticize him, and he just keeps going. Think about all those who leave him, all these things. He just kept going. And he, he tells us, this author, to consider, to really think about it, meditate on it, let it seep in and transform your way of thinking. That's what this idea of considering means. This logical conclusion. Really think it through. Why? Good question. So that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. This author knows the truth. Like all of us, he, he knows there is a true possibility that despair and discouragement will get to us because the weight is big. We're not denying that. But that's why we are called again and again by this author to look upon Christ who kept going. And by considering this, by meditating on this, you don't get discouraged either. He told the disciple before he died, if the master is suffering, do you think they're not going to make his disciples suffer? 
I mean, when you consider that the perfect son of God learned obedience through suffering, do you think you're going to be exempt from that? Of course not. Get back up. And this is when he gets a little bit rougher in his training session in verse 4 by saying, and you struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's kind of harsh. That's like General Patton slapping that soldier with shell shock and saying, get back in the war. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. I like history a bit too much. But it is kind of a, like a slap from the coach. It's harsh. It's rough. But it does bring it back to verse 3, where he told about the example of sinners hostile to Jesus. So I believe that verse 4 is this idea that this, these sinners who are sinning against you by taking your things, by bringing you to jail, well, you haven't resisted to that through the way of shedding blood. When you look at the book of Hebrews, none of them seem to have been martyred yet. And this is what it seems that the author is saying. You haven't even gone to the way of death. Get up. Stop complaining. Eww, don't like hearing that. Yet there is moments where God will say, you can't just th keep throwing yourself that pity party because you're not helping yourself. You can't keep feeding the despair because it's not going to help you. If Christ went all the way to the cross and shed his blood, why do you think you're going to be exempt from that? Get up. And now we're transported to the main event. We are at the Olympics. And like I said, we've lost a couple events. We're kind of discouraged. So this is when he tells us in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, I like that he doesn't just say the exhortation, question mark. He adds the fact that it's addressed as sons, children. Because the whole way through, he's going to be talking about how the father is acting for the good of his children. He's going to try to build that relationship in the painful reality that they're in. Don't deny that. Don't miss that. So that's when he starts with the, the proverb, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. No, be weary when reproved by him. This is when I tell you the word discipline actually talks about training, training children. Yes, it does include physical correction for when they've disobeyed. But again, in the text right now, it's not there yet. Actually, all of this is about how God is training you to continue and to succeed, making you into the image of his son, which is why he talks about not regarding it as lightly. Don't just delegate discipline as in God punishing you, therefore I don't need it right now, I'm being fit. No, 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 that's not what it's about. Don't see the discipline of the Lord as something as simple as a good old spanking. It's not. It is God forging like the master potter that he is, Sometimes he presses down to remove the imperfection. Sometimes he slaps down that clay and says, I've got to start over right now. And that's why he also says, don't be weary when he reproves or presents your guilt to you. You thought you had good intentions in that ministry. Turns out, no, you were prideful, and God showed it to you. Or when that sinful behavior again acts up because the fire trial is so intense, you again get angry. And, oh, I'm so discouraged. Don't grow weary. God's just showing you there's still so much work to do on you, my friend. You are far from being like the perfect son that I have, Jesus. Don't go away with that. He loves you too much to think that you're a good person right now, so he's still at work showing you how much work you need. Four, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's love that's at work right now. It's a love that wants to make you who you should be, godly children, 
which is why he then moves on and tells them, it is for discipline that you have to endure. That's the word, again and again, being presented to us over and over again, being used right now for the last time, by the way, in our passage. You got to endure. Why do you endure? For the discipline. So again, it can't just be about punishment because that's why you're enduring. As you keep going forward, God keeps pressing on you, removing what needs to be removed, transforming you into the image of your son, of his son. Which is why also we, we tend to know Romans 8.28 and forget 8.29. This is what I mean. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to the purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the good God's doing in your life. Not preparing you for marriage, not necessarily giving you great ministry. The best good, make you like Jesus. That's it. That's what he's work doing. That's why you don't get discouraged by this. And that's why this discipline is a lifelong process of God. Not just a few moments when you're really not there. It's all the time. And therefore, he continues. And at this point, he's going to contrast Heavenly Father with earthly fathers. To show us, if you recognize this as necessary and good, why do you got a problem with what God's doing? He's going to be saying... God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline or, again, train? Which, which parent lets their kids do whatever they want and grow up however they want? That's bad parents. So if that's the reality of earthly children, why not divine children? Why would God not be involved in everything about your Christian life? Why do you think that you're so amazing you don't need God to train you? No. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And that's another of those ouch verses, right? When you stop and think about that, if God is not at work in your life, if not exposing stuff in your heart, if he's not forging you and forming you, you need to be afraid, actually. Don't think you're that amazing. It's maybe more you're not sons or daughters of God. Don't want to hear that. I'm glad I didn't say it. He did. And he continues by saying, beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the father spirits and live? Now, maybe when you're five, you don't necessarily respect the fact that your parents are disciplining you, but more you grow up and more you realize they did this for our good, right? More we grow, more we understand and we respect it. They were doing this for my good. So much more, God being infinite, do we not subject ourselves to that. Trust him. He's sovereign, our parents were not. He's absolutely good and all wise, our parents were not. Therefore, even more we could say, if God is in control of all things, and he's using all things to make me like Christ. Therefore, I accept all things that happen in my life. Right? And I love this expression, Father of Spirits, because it comes to the Old Testament, yet it's usually the Lord of Spirits. The author here kind of X the name out and said Father because he wants us to connect 
with God as our father, and that's how we're going to live. And therefore, he continues with another uh, contrast by saying, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Don't miss that amazing contrast, right? On one side, you got them acting for what they think is best, and on the other side, you got the all-knowing God doing what's best for us. Them, us. What's best according to them, what is good according to God. Which one's better? And yet, what's the best good? We've already seen it. I know that we shouldn't say best good, but whatever. That we may share his holiness. That's what it's about. Be made into the image of Christ in full and complete holiness. Now, again, I say the author recognizes that all of this is true. It doesn't make it easy. And so the next verse, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yes. It, it is normal that our first reaction in the fire of the trial, we don't go, thank you, Lord. We go, ouch. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, your first reaction is not say, glory to God. You're saying, ouch. It's, it's normal that that first reaction is not, this is pleasant, but painful. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't miss the later part. Because in a microwave generation, later means a couple of hours maybe, right? A couple of minutes. Maybe a year or two. Sometimes for God, it's decades from now. That's the later part. Decades from now. That's when the peaceable fruit of what? Righteousness again. Because that's what it's all about. Holiness. Righteousness. Resembling. Reflecting. Christ. And it's for who, though? It's for those who have been trained by it. Again, this idea of, of, of this training that you're participating willingly, like we saw in verse 1, where we recognize the things that need to go, where we recognize also before how we subject ourselves to what he's doing. We trust him and submit to it. We are trained by it. It has its impact on us. It's not just, okay, God beat me so I could get it over with. You are being trained by it because you're participating to it. It's a bit like what James tells us in chapter 1 once again. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, joy is presented before us. But again, it's an effort, right? You've got to count it all joy. Because at first, it's not joyful. But there's also a call for steadfastness in this, like we've been seeing about endurance. You've got to continue if you only want to taste the full fruit of what this is supposed to produce. This perfect and complete and, if you will, righteous reality that we're looking to. Peter talks the same way as well. Because, of course, it's the same author, the Holy Spirit. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Please recognize the fiery trial, discipline of the Lord. They're interchangeable here. It's the same thing. It's God at work to make us more like a son. Don't be surprised by that, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
Again, this joy that should be to be present because of what is to come. Again, this idea of pointing to Christ who did it before us and we just follow in his footsteps. Therefore, we know we're going to suffer as well. And it's, it's, it's waiting for this great return to be with him. And now, now we're ready. Now the Rocky music is playing. We're getting back up. It's time to beat our opponent. Verse 12 tells us, therefore, consider what I've just told you guys. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Get your hands up. You drop your guard for a second, you'll be KO'd. Get your hands up. Get ready to fight. But of course, the author wasn't thinking of Rocky. But Isaiah, actually. Isaiah 35, where we read this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And I could continue because it's, it's about Christ. As I was, again, prophesying about the, return, the coming of Christ, but, of course, the author of the Hebrews, he's talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about lift up your hands, start running, because you want to jump into Jesus' hand as quick as possible. So get back in that running. And in verse 13, he adds to this, and make straight path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is another quote from the Old Testament, actually, in Proverbs. We read this. Pounder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. You got to find those straight paths. Why? Because you're tired right now. You've been working out hard. You've been training hard. You're in the Olympics right now, and your feet are starting to get heavy. Right? And so anything that's in the way, you might stumble over it way easier. You need that straight path. You need the path that's going to bring healing and not put you out of joint, right? When you're tired, your hips are aching, and you stumble, that hurts. That hurts intense. That puts you out of joint. Now, now of course, in a more spiritual sense here, for us Christians, we can think of the old path, the means of grace, the basic straight path that we should all recognize. We need the word, we need prayer, we need the fellowship of believers. That's the straight path. That's the humility of saying, I can't do this for myself. I need the word, I need prayer, I need brothers and sisters. Because if not, I'm going to be put out of joint. I'm going to fall and hurt myself really bad. I think humility to recognize that. I need what heals truly. And God has already provided that, that straight path. So I say to anyone right now, once again, who's going through a difficult time, you got to recognize that this is the discipline of the Lord. Don't grow weary in this. Do not feed the discouragement and the despair and the frustration and the doubts and the question, why, O oh Lord? Don't feed that. Feed on the manna, the living manna, Christ, the example that we have before us, but also the word, the manna, that presents to us this, this reality that is to come, that's supposed to be more real to us than what is right now. So it gets shattered this present reality and this weight of glory will be far, far greater. At the same time, if you're doing really great, you are on fire, your hands are up and you have been running like crazy, watch out. Watch out because that's when sin gets you to think I could add more weights then. 
right? I don't need the straight path. I don't need the discipline of the Lord. Come on, I'm doing well. That's when you need to watch out. You need those straight paths more than ever. You need the discipline of the Lord more than ever. If you think that you're so amazing, you don't need discipline, you got a problem. On the contrary, may we be humbled enough to come before God and recognize our need of this text and this truth in our lives, that you'd be running fast or that you'd be on the floor right now. We need such truth, the discipline of the Lord for our good. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are patient with us because you speak this truth to us, I mean, over and over again. Some of us have been Christian for so long, we've heard stuff like that, and we still forget it. We still forget it, Lord. We still keep adding weights to ourselves, stuff that should not be part of our lives, and we convince ourselves that it's not that bad, that we would love you enough to say, I don't need it, I don't want it, I only want Jesus. Help us to be alert, Lord, to how sin is a liar and it is everywhere in us, in every sense possible. Help us to be alert of these things and to trust you, Lord, as you work us through by your mighty hand out of a loving, fatherly gesture. Help our brothers and sisters who are being crushed right now to recognize it's the hand of God. It's not for your evil. It's for your good to trust you. Oh, Father, to submit and surrender to it, to be trained by it and not discouraged. And maybe be used in their lives to remind us of these things, to, to tell them, to, to talk to their hearts, Lord, to exhort them. And maybe we also be watchful. Lord, pride is, 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 is so present. And we, we look at such texts and we don't think it's for us and that's why we need to realize it is more than ever. It is more than ever. So Father, may help us to humbly recognize that we need our Father at work 24-7. To surrender to it more than ever. To look for those straight path, the healing path. To not think that we're so incredible that we can jump over hurdles, but on the contrary, we need our Heavenly Father. Bring us to that place of humility, childlike dependency that we all need. Lord, may you apply your word in our lives as you see fit on this week, I pray. Amen.